If you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, this will be the text that we will be studying together. We Christians are always in need of encouragement and admonition and um, strength to persist in our efforts to live the Christian life. This chapter certainly provides that. Notice beginning in verse uh, 19, we are admonished to have boldness to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ. Notice the Hebrews is loaded with uh, allusions back to Judaism and the Mosaic law. And you remember how there was um, a most holy place that only the high priest was allowed to enter and him only once a year. And with the death of Christ, uh, by his flesh offered on the cross, we are enabled to enter the most holy place into the presence of God, be forgiven of sin. So that's the illusion uh, that he's making there, a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. Remember there was a veil that separated the holy from the most holy. And having a high priest, uh, that is his flesh, and having a high priest uh, over the house of God. So notice that uh, Christ's blood, his flesh, this is all a reference to the crucifixion. Jesus has made it possible for us to be saved and acceptable to him uh, based upon the blood that he offered. Then notice, let us then draw near with a <clears throat> true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Well, here is a reference to the obedience that we are required to have. Believe, repent, be baptized. So the blood of Christ was made available to us, enabling us to have access to God, and so we obey the gospel and we become New Testament Christians and therefore are on our way toward heaven in striving to live the Christian life. So these are, are powerful and helpful uh, verses 19 through 23 that describes our conversion. Then we move on. Verse 24, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice that's not merely talking about an oral confession. That's certainly included. We make an oral confession when we, in order to become a member of the church. Uh, but we also live a life of confession. Uh, Jesus made reference to this in Matthew 10. You remember when he said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess. Well, he doesn't mean just stand there before other people and say, Jesus is Christ. Confess him. He means <clears throat> to Live your life in such a way that you are openly indicating your allegiance to him. Letting people know that you are serving Christ, living for Christ, that you consider him to be the son of God, and you are devoting your life to him. So our confession is the way we live every day. Living the Christian life without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, and notice that uh, while we want to do that at all times, right, prod and urge each other to live the Christian life faithfully, in this context, it's talking more about doing that in this assembly that we're in, this gathering. That's no doubt the most prominent place where the church is in a position to encourage each other and uh, prod each other, uh, stimulate, urge each other to try to go forward and to do good because we're not around each other uh, most of the time the rest of the week. And therefore you see even more the, how critical it is to not uh, miss uh, church attendance. You know, I, I grew up 
in churches of Christ. Um, so many, many years of uh, interacting in the Lord's church. And uh, church attendance has always been a problem. Probably less at this congregation than any congregation I've ever been affiliated with. Most churches uh, will assemble for worship on Sunday morning and they put the, the number up on the board. You know, how many people come and then that evening it'll drop easily to 50% of the people that were there Sunday morning. And that, that's pretty common across our brotherhood. And it's, uh, it's common among the denominations as well. And that's always astounded me because there are things that are stated in Scripture explicitly. And then there are things that are just as important and just as obligatory, but they are implicit. You have to do a little more thinking and reasoning about it. But for God to say explicitly, do not forsake the assembly of the church. I'm astounded at how many people do not take that seriously. It's a critical time not only to worship God, but to motivate one another, urge one another to be faithful to God. Of course, the day approaching has been discussed by different people. Is that the end of time? Is that um, uh, AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is that simply referring to and so much more as you see Sunday about to arrive? Any of those would be fine. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the point still holds and uh, church attendance is important. Notice, exhorting one another. Isn't that what we do when we come together? We do it when we sing to each other, when our teachers teach us, uh, when we uh, listen to preaching, and whenever the scripture is read. All of that is a way to ex exhort all of us to be faithful to him and to stay with this uh, life upon which we have embarked. So verses 24 and 25, the importance not only of our conversion, but of our confession. Now, look at this lengthy section here that gets... Um, rather um, piercing. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Those are strong words. And notice the whole context of the book of Hebrews and of this section in particular is the church. We're talking Christians here. We're not talking people outside the church or people who have never become New Testament Christians. This is God's people. I'm astounded that the uh, once saved, always saved people hold the view that they hold. There's just too much in the Bible against that. The entire book of Hebrews is against that concept because we're talking about Christians, in this case Jewish Christians, Christians of Hebrew descent. Notice that He's not talking here about isolated sins that we all commit and will continue to commit till the day we die. He's talking about pretending to be a Christian, but really not. And really, in many ways, throwing in the towel, not really interested in living the Christian life. I've got other things going on in my life, and that's really what I'm devoted to. It's more of an apostasy type concept that this book deals with, but... He's warning that it's possible for Christians to so alienate themselves from their confession, from their devotion to God, that they rightly must look forward to 
fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. That's strong terminology. And obviously this is referring to the end of time, to the ultimate judgment and hell that will ensue after that. See, if a, if a Christian can't fall from grace, why admonish a Christian to be fearful of a coming hell? Unless a Christian can be consigned to that location. Where the adversaries of God will be eliminated. Then he talks about how under the law of Moses... Uh, when people violated uh, the laws, uh, death penalty laws, under at the mouth of two or three witnesses, they were executed. And then look at this uh, comparison. Okay, if that's the way God wanted that handled in, under civil law, then think about the spiritual law that governs God, uh, God's people today. How much sore, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? Who has? And then notice the three things that he mentions. Trample the Son of God underfoot, so trample Jesus. Count the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, the very thing that makes it possible for us to be forgiven of sin, have hope of heaven, to avoid hell. It's treated as if it is, has no value, and insulted the spirit of grace, insulting deity himself. Well, how do you do that? How can you be guilty of that? Well, in context, of course, he's been... He mentioned not holding fast our confession, and he, he got very specific, did he not, about church attendance. So to step away from the church and to no longer be dedicated, devoted, and loyal in all of its attributes, all of its features, which includes church attendance, Lord's Supper. You know, we talked about that, did we, not too, not too long ago, about uh, is that mandatory? Is, does God want every uh, adult on the face of this planet right now. So how many is that now? Seven billion? Are all of, all of them obligated sometime during the 24-hour period known as the first day of the week? Are they obligated to think about the death of Christ and to commemorate that by partaking of the Lord's Supper emblems? Is that an obligatory thing for the whole human race? Absolutely. Well, what are they doing by not doing that? Well, they're cinching their eternal fate. And in particular for Christians, uh, he even says that you can trample Jesus underfoot. How many people do that and would say, I don't do that? I don't trample Jesus underfoot. Well, we must not determine that based upon how we feel about it, what we think. We must go to Scripture and tell us where God says that is taking place. Then he quotes two verses from um, Deuteronomy 32 and brings them right into the New Testament. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he's talking there in context in Deuteronomy 32, again, of the Israelites, God's people, not, you know, the pagans out here in the world. And then the second quotation, the Lord will judge his people. So all Christians who turn away from God and his church are guilty of trampling Christ, considering the blood of no use, and insulting the Spirit. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's comment on that for just a moment. It's hard to think of God, um, of people standing, we all know that everybody's going to stand before God at the end of time on the day of judgment and be judged. But it's hard to think of God judging Christians 
And again, much of Christendom would say he's not going to do that. They're already saved and they can't be lost. But again, that's clearly what this passage is teaching and the Deuteronomy passage from which it quotes. Christians can fall from grace and so we have to strive every day to be faithful. And notice again, this, uh, this is just an observation that the Hebrews writer then makes. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Jesus kind of echoed that in Matthew 10 when he said, um, don't fear him who ki can kill your body. I'll tell you who you should fear though. Him who, having destroyed the body, can put your spirit into hell. Well, this is kind of an echo of that, isn't it? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, how do you make sense of this kind of very strong, uh, abrasive declarations? Well, let's do it quickly. Does God love us intensely? Does God want us to go to heaven? Does God want us to avoid hell? Does, has God done everything he can possibly do to enable us to be acceptable to him and to, and to be in heaven with him? He has. The love of God is so clear from Scripture. Does God want us in, in response to love him? Sure, certainly he does. He, 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 again, he's done everything he can to motivate us to do so. And yet... That doesn't mean that, uh, therefore, we have nothing to worry about. Um, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to be saved. That doesn't follow, as much of Christendom does, and now even many in, in our congregations. There are congregations in this town that if you go talk with them, their concept of grace is such that... Um, they believe there's not really anything they could do that they would be separated from God. Passages like this make it very clear that that is not the case. It's true that faithful Christians should know they're saved. Right? You can know that you were saved based on the fact that you know how you're living. You know, unless you're on drugs and unconscious of how you're living, you're aware of how you're living your life. And so if you're striving to be faithful to God every day, even in the midst of your errors and mistakes, then you know what it means to be faithful. The denominational world, however, not only due to the wide swath that's been cut through Christendom by John Calvin's thinking, perseverance of the saints, that's left a lot of people with a false sense of security and even within the church. Their concept of grace... Um, makes them think they can't be lost. Uh, this was on full display in 2006. You remember when Rick Ashley preached the sermon justifying the introduction of instruments into their services. He made this statement. He said, you know, we've been preaching and practicing the gospel of grace in this church for many, many years. And so the introduction of instruments is simply another step in living that out. Now think about his, how he would define grace. He's defining grace as, if you'll get off of this stuff about you've got to obey God, do exactly what he tells you to do, and you'll get over here in the realm of God loves me, he accepts me, and he's not going to be nitpicky about details. Then we can introduce instruments, we could introduce praise teams, we could do all kinds of things that we want to do because 
We live by the gospel of grace. You see that? That's where he is in his thinking. He has alienated himself from the mind of God as it is depicted in these passages. Look, for example, let's step out of Hebrews for just a moment and take a look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's that? Who escapes the pollutions of the world via biblical knowledge, Christ's information? That is a reference not to people who have merely come into contact with that knowledge. It's people who have embraced it, who have obeyed it. That's the only way to escape pollutions of the world. You can't escape the pollutions of the world. That is, you cannot be cleansed from the pollutions of the world, forgiven of your sin, based upon simply coming to a knowledge of God in Christ and what he's done. This is talking about conversion. If after that occurs, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Them, notice, referring to pollutions. So to be again entangled, to overcome, that's a way to describe a person who is, even though they've come out of the world, they've been cleansed of those pollutions, they've gone back to that. Correct? This is so graphic and so explicit. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. How can that be? Why would you say that because, after, because a Christian goes back into the world and, and is once again entangled and lost, why is that worse than the shape that he was in before? Well, for one thing, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, there are degrees of punishment in hell. You know, the Bible teaches that plainly. And it's going to go harder for people who knew God's truth and maybe even accepted it and then rejected it versus the person who didn't know. Okay? So, when you were blessed by accessing grace and truth and God and then you embraced it and then threw it away, that's worse than if you had not accessed it to begin with. That's the point that he is making. And then he proceeds to say, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, the next thing he says here in 2 Peter chapter 2 is, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. This cinches the point that he's talking about Christians, not non-Christians. He compares us as Christians who have escaped the pollutions of the world, and then we turn around and go right back into it. He says, that's like a sick dog. Now follow the, uh, the illustration here. It's graphic, it's, it's pungent. This is a depiction of a non-Christian. Is it not a person who's never been saved? They're sick, spiritually, and lost. However, if this uh, dog gets rid of his sickness, if you're squeamish, you might want to close your eyes until we get through this illustration. Kids will love it. This dog expelled what was making him sick, which made him well. Okay, that's a non-Christian becoming a Christian. 
Now, what would you think of the dog who then goes over there and licks that back up and once again acquires his illness? Now, you know, if this is too graphic, don't blame me, blame Peter. This is his illustration, not mine, right? It's the Holy Spirit's. Isn't that graphic? But he's not finished with us. He gives us another one. It's also like a pig. A pig that is washed, notice the terminology, a sow having washed and yet returns to wallowing in the mire. See how succinct scripture is? You've got to sit there and think about that, these illustrations and flesh it out. That he's giving us three stages of a, of a human being's life. So the pig in the mire is a biblical, spiritual description of a non-Christian. All these people out here in the world that have never become Christians, they are like pigs in muck and mire, spiritually speaking. God's not trying to be offensive here or anything. He's just stating a fact. They are spiritually diseased, ill, sick. They are wallowing in mire and mud. Whenever they come out of that condition and are washed and cleansed, that's a way to describe a non-Christian becoming a Christian. Wonderful. But then imagine the Christian going back into the world, back into the muck and mire. See the distinction between the first picture and the last picture? Spiritually, they're in the exact same condition. But one of them was a non-Christian, the other one is a Christian. The fact that the person became a Christian does not alter the fact that he has now returned to a spiritual condition that is exactly like the one he was in before he ever became a Christian. This one passage alone proves that the bulk of Christendom, I'm telling you many denominations, many of them, buy into the uh, perseverance of the saints notion. That once you become a Christian, God will keep you. You're kept by the power of God. You cannot be lost. Nobody can pluck you from his hand. They have passage after passage that they go to to try to justify that. Misuse of passages. This passage alone proves that is simply not true. Hebrews and Peter were warning us that you as a Christian can so conduct yourself that you will be lost ultimately. Someone says, yeah, but you know, once you're a child of God, you can't become an unchild. Right? You're the child of your parents, and there's not anything you can do that would cause you to not still be their child. That's one of the arguments that would be used to try to argue that a person cannot fall from grace. Do you remember Luke 15, the prodigal son, when he finally returned, the father said, This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's true. You never stop being a child of God once you become a child of God. But you can be a lost child. You can be a dead child, spiritually dead and therefore lost. Uh, notice the father repeated that in verse 32. Your brother was dead. He's alive again. He was lost, but now he has been found. The fact that you that's why we call members of the church who apostatize, we call them wayward members of the church, wayward children of God, something along that line. We're not suggesting that they're no longer children, but they are lost. They've, they've removed themselves from the grace of their father and have placed themselves 
in an unacceptable situation. Now, notice how we wind down this uh, chapter. Recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, notice that reference to becoming a Christian. Uh, so, getting rid of your sickness, throwing it up, um, getting out of the muck and mire and being washed and cleansed, or being illuminated from darkness to light. All those are metaphors that the Bible uses to describe becoming a Christian. Now, we don't know what all was involved in this. He's referring to incidents and events that these experiences that these brethren had endured. They had gone through suffering. They were made a spectacle uh, through public reproaches, through tribulations, and uh, became companions of those who were so treated. And yet, he says, you were very kind to me in uh, even being willing to have your own possessions plundered. And look at the outcome of this. You know, why do Christians go through what they go through and put up with what they put up with rather than say, you know what, enough of this. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I want to go back into the world and live the way I want. And I don't know about you. I'm sure you could say this as I'm saying it. I have known many, many people in my lifetime who have done that very thing. Many. You know, for example, a brother that uh, I met when I was in southern Illinois preaching, I went there to preach, to attend school at, at a university there, and, and they were members. They, they had not been raised in the church, he and his wife, but they, they obeyed the gospel. Great people. He uh, very active in the church. Uh, in fact, he, he made such development and progress that when I moved to Texas, I contacted him and said, you need to come down here and go to the school of preaching. So he did. He uprooted his family and moved down there, outstanding student, an older student compared to the, the younger ones, uh, very mature, just an outstanding fellow. And then he left the school and went uh, down to Florida and became the local preacher, and uh, was also appointed an elder. Just did an outstanding job. And then he took up with his fellow elder's wife, left the church, and the last time a friend of mine saw him he was at a gas station pumping gas with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. You know, he had just gone completely back into the world after all those years, abandoned his family. How do you explain that? Well, the point I'm making is it happens many, many times. Many people do that. The way the Hebrews writer would put it is if you have an evil heart of unbelief within you, that's just incubating there until it finally comes out. And that's happened so many times. But it need not be that way. Notice that that's not God's doing or anyone else's except the person. It's their doing. Well, what do we have to look forward to when we decide to put up with all the things that are going on, to resist all of the allurements that are alluring to the flesh, but which we know are wrong. You know, what, what do you get for putting up with all of that? Holding yourself um, controlled, self-controlled in terms of spiritual things. Well, you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So, in addition to uh, the changed life, we have the ability to endure and be confident in the outcome of it because um, we have decided to hang on to it. So don't throw it away. Look at that. So that's what he did and many others. They throw it away. They just throw it away. 
Don't give up when things get tough. Don't allow your relatives, you know, or your financial situation, or your job situation, or uh, people that you thought were friends and they ended up mistreating you. And, you know, and on and on and on we can go with these things. Accidents. I've known people when they have a traumatic accident that throws their physical condition uh, into chaos, that jars them enough that they think, man, I don't want any more to do with this. Don't give up when things get tough. That's what he's saying. Why? Because there will be a great reward. So what do we need to do? Here's a good summary of the Christian life. Endurance. Hanging in there no matter what. Not throwing in the towel. Continue to prod, plot along. Go forward no matter what. Bear up and keep living the Christian life. And notice that God promises us that... Uh, He's going to come, and he'll accept us. This quotation from Habakkuk 2.4, look carefully at it. The just, that's talking about the righteous person, the Christian, shall live by faith. That is, the way for you to survive life, to remain alive spiritually, is to be faithful. The just shall live by faith. The way for you to get through this life and maintain your righteous standing before God is to live obediently and faithfully. That's how we survive. That's how we function in order to make it uh, to the end. Now, here's the danger. We can draw back. You know, we've already seen this. Second Peter showed that, and this book shows it. There were people who were enduring persecution in Hebrews. They said, enough of this. They drew back. They pulled back into the world, pulled back out of the church, pulled out of their righteous lives. And God says, that's it. See, there's another slap at the once saved, always saved. God says, no more, I have no more pleasure in you. You have placed yourself in an unacceptable condition. And I cannot accept that. That's God. Let's not be like that. Look at this wonderful admonition. We're not going to do that. We are not of those who draw back to, by the way, perdition, destruction, a clear reference to hell. No, we are those who are going to maintain our faithfulness. This belief is not, you know, accept Jesus as your Savior. This is living a life of faith, living a, an obedient lifestyle as a Christian. And what is the ultimate outcome? Notice the outcome of drawing back, that's hell. What is the outcome of hanging in there and being faithful? The saving of the soul for eternity and thus to be allowed to be in heaven. It's incredible then that um, false doctrine arises out of a defective view of who God is. Uh, Romans 11 summarizes it well. On the one hand, uh, God is good. He wants everybody to be saved, does he not? He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He, he wishes hell had no one in it, ultimately. But there's a severe aspect of God. By the way, notice this, this is the perfect parents, too. Parents that are all permissive, you know, here's candy, you know, just good all the time, always positive. Those are not good parents. There has to be discipline and and negative things, and reprimands, and, and so forth. That's God. And look at how um, those who fall, 
See, this is all self-chosen. Decisions people make to fall spiritually. All right, they're going to be dealt with severely. But if you continue, in fact, look at the terminology here. This is, again, Scripture is constantly emphasizing that salvation is conditional. And it depends on you, not God. God's done everything for us to make us saved that we could not do. But now our acceptance of it, our choice to go with it and stay with it, that's conditional. And it depends upon us if we continue in His goodness. So all these people out here in the world that are lost have nobody to complain, uh, nobody uh, to blame except themselves because they could be in God's goodness and then continue in it. But it's their choice. And they must uh, make that decision. All right, let's close with... uh, Uh, Once again, a summary of the profound, unbelievable means by which all of us who are Christians have been permitted to be acceptable to Him. Hearing this uh, message of salvation, believing and accepting it, turning from our sin, confessing Christ with our mouth and being immersed, and then striving to live the Christian life and constantly repenting of sin, confessing it, and praying that God uh, will forgive us. I hope that's encouraging to you. Uh, The Bible's loaded with this kind of encouragement, and I don't see how we can get through this life and not allow the the things of life to jar us loose from our spiritual moorings if we don't keep going back to these passages and reassuring ourselves and building ourselves up in the most holy faith. It is Scripture's the mind of God, and we've got to constantly be tapping into His thinking in order to survive everything that's coming at us. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, will you do that as we stand and sing? Jesus is calling, 
Calling all sinners, come home. Oh, for the wonderful love He has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, He hath mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Thank you, Brother Miller, for that lesson. Thank you for reminding us of just keeping, keeping ourselves faithful. And may God help us all to do the best we can to continually work hard to be diligent. Uh, we meet again. Uh, we have in the 5 o'clock singing. Okay, 5 o'clock training and singing and uh, 5.30 memory class and then 6 o'clock worship hour. If you'll uh, turn with me to number 550. We'll sing this song and after which we'll be led in prayer and dismissed. Number 550. Five, <coughs> verses 1 and 3. Verses 1 and 3. Let us sing. When with the Savior we enter the glory land, won't it be wonderful there? Ended the troubles and cares of the storyland. Won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to bear. Joyously singing with harp bells all ringing. Oh, won't it be wonderful there? There where the tempest will never be sweeping. Oh, won't it be wonderful there? Sure that forever the Lord will be keeping us. Won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to bear. Joyously singing with heart bells all ringing. Up. Won't it be wonderful there?